Well, good morning. It's good to be together as we worship today and enter once more the Christian calendar that tells the story of Jesus throughout the year. Uh, some of you uh, may be familiar with this calendar. Maybe you've grown up in it or, or you've heard these seasons and things. Others of you uh, are less familiar with it and, and, and these rhythms. And so as we enter into this season, I want to briefly address a couple of questions. One question is this, are these seasons that we're talking about in the Bible, right? Are, are they biblical? And the short answer is, well, no. Actually, not, not really. There's no passage in the Bible that shows us the early church observing Advent, Christmas, or Lent. Um, they do gather to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it's not at Easter. Rather, it's every time they get together and gather around the table that they remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So no, these seasons are not in the Bible. Uh, and so that leads to the second question, why follow them, right? Why, why follow these different seasons, right? Where do they, are they just traditions of people, so on and so forth? And, and I would say the same, the, the reason we celebrate these seasons is the same reason why we gather in a building, why we use a projector screen, why we sing songs that, uh, you know, were written in the last 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years, rather than songs directly from the Bible necessarily. Um, that is to say, we use all of these things to serve us as we worship God. They're all tools that we use to worship God. Um, and so the very same thing is true with these seasons. Following these seasons, this calendar throughout the year, can help guide us in worship, in the worship of Jesus. It is not a requirement to follow these seasons of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and so on and so forth, but I have found it to be very helpful to, to follow these seasons together. Here's the primary reason why I found it in particular to be very helpful, is that this calendar points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. It points us to his life, his death, his resurrection, his reign, and his coming return, right? It points us to that throughout these years. Through, though these seasons are not in the Bible, they are profoundly biblical because they point us to the central story of the Bible, which is the story of Jesus. And then a secondary reason why I enjoy and think it can be good and helpful to follow these seasons is because it unites us with Christians across the world and across history. Uh, of course, not all Christians follow this calendar. I did not grow up following it. Um, but many do, and many have throughout history. Uh, and following this calendar is a good reminder that we are not the first ones to follow Jesus. We are not the only ones to follow Jesus. Many do, and many have 
gone before us. There is a long history of people that we can learn from as we seek to follow Jesus together. So we enter once more into this calendar with the season of Advent. And so as we enter into the season of Advent, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, right at the very end of the Bible. Revelation is where we are heading during this season of Advent. As you're turning there, there's a couple of reasons why I'd like to spend some time in Revelation together during this season. One of them is is the, the teacher in me. We've just finished going through the book of Daniel. And Uh, We were just talking about this in our conversation hour. There is so much connectivity and resonance between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Uh, And so it just seems good and right to go here while Daniel is still fresh on our minds. We might pick up on some of the images and commonalities between them a little bit faster. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why I want to go here. But another reason is because of the focus of the season of Advent. The season of Advent is about the arrival of Jesus. It's about the arrival of Jesus. Now, we often think of it primarily about Jesus' first arrival at his birth and in preparing for that first arrival. It's primarily been seen often as a pre-Christmas season. And it is that, but for much of history in the Christian church, Advent was actually primarily focused on the second coming of Jesus which is the coming of Jesus that we are all still waiting and longing for right now. This truly is the season that we find ourselves in. We long for Jesus to come and return. That's what the book of Revelation is about. The whole book of Revelation culminates in the final chapter, in the final couple of verses with the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That is the heart cry of the church, especially during the season of Advent. So, Revelation is where we are headed. Um, Before we dive in, let me share a few things and, and, and connect some things, and then we'll get to reading it. Like the second half of Daniel, Revelation seems to be the kind of book that many people are either obsessed with or avoid altogether, right? I mean, it just tends to fall into one of those two categories. You either just love all of these images and you have all kinds of ideas about it, or you're just like, that's weird, I don't know, right? That's pretty typical. There are parts we absolutely love. There are other parts that are confusing and overwhelming and disturbing. But let's just start with what the book of Revelation is, Right? On the one hand, the book of Revelation is a letter. Uh, Very simply, it's a letter. It begins like most other letters in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 4, with uh, um, saying who it's from, who it's to, and a a word of, of greeting. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. 
grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Right? So very simply, it's, it's a letter. And chapters 2 and 3 are largely straightforward addresses to these seven churches, offering them a mix of correction and encouragement. But very quickly, we see that this is not merely an ordinary letter. Um, it is a letter that emerges from an apocalyptic vision of Jesus. And this is where we start seeing connections with the book of Daniel, all right? Um, in verse 7 of, of chapter 1, uh, Daniel, I, don't, I guess I don't have this on the screen. Uh, uh, John writes, look, he is coming with the clouds. This is a quote from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, if, you, if you remember this, it refers to this Son of Man figure from Daniel chapter 7. And then beginning in verse 12, John writes, I saw seven golden lampstands. Uh, and among the lampstands was someone like a Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. All right, this sounds like the stuff of Daniel, right? I mean, this, this sounds very similar. This vision of Jesus has similarities with the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, where it says, Thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white as wool. It also has resonance with the messenger that appears in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel says, I looked up, there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs gleam of burnished bronze, his voice like the sound of a multitude. All right, so there's all these connections already in the very first few verses between Revelation and Daniel, right? So, Revelation is a letter written to people in the first century. And it is also a lengthy apocalyptic vision that ultimately leads to the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And this is what we're going to be exploring together over the next few weeks in this season of Advent. One more thing. One of the reasons why Revelation can be so overwhelming is that we get lost in all of the intense action in chapters 6 through 20. There is a lot that happens in that big, bulky section of the book. But the best way for us to grasp the book of Revelation and its primary message is to focus on the book's primary image, which is the throne and the Lamb. 
the throne of God and the Lamb of God. This is the central image of the book of Revelation. Here's a quick overview of the whole book that will help keep this in focus, right? Chapter 1, as we've already seen, is this introduction. There's the greeting, there's this vision of Jesus, and so on. Chapters 2 through 3 are these letters to the seven churches uh, at the time. Then chapters 4 and 5 introduce us to the central image of Revelation, the throne and the Lamb. And from there, chapters 6 through 20 contain all of these apocalyptic cycles. There are seals and trumpets and bulls and beasts and battles and wild things that unfold for many chapters. But at the end of the book, in chapters 21 and 22, we come back to that central image of the throne of God and the Lamb, right? That's the central image of this whole book, and that's the thing we need to keep before us as we reflect on all that it has. So, after all of this introduction that I have just given you, today I want to read chapters 4 and 5 together. That central image of the throne and the Lamb. And we're going to read these whole chapters in their entirety. So, like we have with Daniel, I'd love a few people who would be willing to help read. Can I get a few volunteers? Andrea? Linda? A couple more? Or one more? Okay, Chris, the three of you, come on up. That'll, that'll be enough for us. Um, come on up and we'll take turns reading together. Revelation 4 and 5. We'll each read a slide and pass it around a couple times. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. As we continue, let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for these beautiful, colorful, stirring images that draw us to long for you and for your return. God, as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, I ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right. Now, these chapters are filled with all kinds of intense and colorful images. So, here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you about one or two minutes to turn to someone next to you and share what is a word, a phrase, or an image from this reading that stands out to you or stirs within you and catches your attention. Uh, Turn and share, and then we'll come back together in just a couple minutes. All right, we'll bring us back together. Just about one minute or so there. Um, There's just so many images here um, and so much that that uh, draws our hearts out. And that's the point of, of this kind of story. That's the point of this kind of text, is to stir our hearts and draw us in. So let's look at these central images, the throne and the Lamb, the central images of the book of Revelation. They appear here and again right at the end. And so they're the, the overarching uh, piece of this whole story. The, the descriptions in these chapters point to what I see are are three themes as we look in particular at the throne in chapter 4. Three themes, power, beauty, and worship. Power, beauty, and worship. Power. Obviously, the image of a throne is one of power. God is the one who sits on the throne because, as we've been saying over and over again for the last few months, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. We get this sense of power as he sits on the throne. But we also get a sense of power from the flashes of lightning and the rumblings and the peals of thunder that sound from the throne, right? Uh, it's similar to the description of God's presence at the top of Mount Sinai after he's powerfully led his people out of Egypt, right? This is a God who is strong and powerful, a God who delivers his people stronger than the gods of Egypt, stronger than Pharaoh. He is a God who delivers his people, brings them into freedom. And yet that rumbling thunder and stuff can have a sense of ominous foreboding as we approach this powerful God. However, in addition to images of power, there's also a sense of beauty, right? I mean, the ominous foreboding thunder might try to scare us away, but the beauty in this image draws us closer, draws us closer. Verse 3 says, the one who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Uh, These descriptions of dazzling, precious stones and shining colors. This God is powerful, but it's ultimately not a power that makes us cower in fear, but rather a power that moves and inspires us with incredible beauty and draws us near. And all of that leads to worship. After all, when you see something powerful and beautiful, what can you do but be stirred to awe and wonder and worship, right? And there are several pictures of worship throughout 
this chapter. First, in verse 4, we see 24 elders with their own thrones and crowns. But in verse 10, they are no longer on their thrones or wearing their crowns because they're bowing before God and laying their crowns before him. Many understand these 24 elders to represent the sons of Jacob, who became the 12 tribes of Israel, along with the 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, That's one way of possibly understanding it. Others understand them to be a reference to the 24 divisions of the priesthood described in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. You can go find a list there if you want to see it. Either way, it seems to be a picture of all of God's people who were described later on in the passage that we read as a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. These 24 elders are a picture of all the people of God's kingdom ruling and reigning with God by bowing down and worshiping him just as we were created to do. It's this picture of God's people worshiping the God who created them. The next picture of worship comes in verse 6. In front of the throne, there's what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. This description of a throne surrounded by four living creatures, a lion, an ox, a human, and an eagle, with wings, echoes another picture of a heavenly throne room vision from Ezekiel chapter 1. You can go and read Ezekiel 1, and and there's almost the exact same image of four living creatures described as a lion, an ox, a human, and an eagle around the throne of God. But... This image also functions as a kind of photo negative of Daniel chapter 7, the vision in Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember how that chapter began? Uh, It began with four monstrous creatures coming up out of a chaotic sea to destroy and wreak havoc on the earth. And then suddenly it cuts to God's throne room. Here, we have the opposite. We have the picture of a calm, glassy, crystal sea, not a sea of chaos. And we have four living creatures offering worship to God in heaven rather than four mutant monsters wreaking havoc on earth. The picture in Daniel is one of earth corrupted by sin, but this picture in Revelation is one of the kingdom of God in heaven. These four living creatures seem to represent all of the created order, worshiping God as they were meant to. And so uh, together we have the people of God worshiping God, the creatures of God worshiping God. It is this beautiful picture of worship, and all of this ultimately culminates in songs of worship as the four creatures sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders sing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. 
This is something we're going to see often through the book of Revelation. There are these constant breaks in the story, song breaks in the action where suddenly things break out into worship. It just happens over and over again. I encourage you to flip through the book of Revelation and just look for the places where it switches to poetry and linger there with those words of worship because they are powerful and beautiful songs of worship. The late pastor and author Eugene Peterson described Revelation as a hallelujah banquet, and it truly is that. It is a banquet of hallelujahs over and over again. So chapter 4 begins with the throne, a picture of power and beauty and worship. And then chapter 5 moves to the second half of the central image in the book of Revelation. And the book of Daniel will also help us to understand what comes next in the order of events. Remember Daniel chapter 7. The monster visions are interrupted by a vision of the heavenly throne room where we see the ancient of days on the throne. And then at the conclusion of that, it says the court was seated and the books were opened, right? So this is a court scene, a a scene of judgment. And Also, throughout the book of Daniel, there are a number of times when Daniel is told to seal up his visions in the scroll for the end, right? So in Revelation 5, verse 1, John describes, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, I'm not suggesting that this scroll and the seals are meant to literally be the same one that Daniel had sealed up and so on, necessarily. But what I'm suggesting is that there is resonance between these two stories, these two books, so that the reader is meant to understand that whatever this scroll is, at the beginning of Revelation 5, it has to do with God finally bringing righteous judgment and restoration to the world. It has to do with God accomplishing his purposes in the world. All of that is bound up in this sealed scroll. It becomes clear that opening the scroll is essential for accomplishing all that God desires to do. But a problem emerges in verse 2. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? In other words, who can actually accomplish God's purposes? Who is there that can truly bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Verses 3 and 4 are a lament. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. See, despite generations of God's people, no one has been able 
to bring about God's purposes in the world. Beginning with Adam and Eve and on, every generation has fallen and failed. God called Abraham and made him into the nation of Israel, but they ultimately turned away and began worshiping idols. God called David to be a king, but the kings that came after would ultimately turn away from God and lead the people into exile, right? Everyone has sought their own way and worshiped things that were not God. No one has been able to bring about God's kingdom on earth. So John weeps. Who can accomplish these things? Who can do this? But then in verse 5, one of the elders interrupts John's lament and says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now here we have one of the central paradoxes in the book of Revelation. And a central paradox at the heart of Christian faith. You see, the elder says, see the lion, right? And so we expect a creature of great power and strength and and fear to arrive. Suddenly we have verse 6. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Suddenly we see not a lion but a lamb. And not only a lamb but a lamb looking as if it had been slain. One of the central paradoxes in the book of Revelation and at the heart of the gospel is that power does not come through domination, but through sacrifice. Power does not come through domination and destruction. It comes through service and sacrifice. True power. God's power is not depicted by a lion bearing its teeth, but by a lamb bleeding its blood. This once more is a picture of God's deliverance of his people from the Exodus. How were they delivered? By the blood of the lamb over their doorstep. This is a story of God delivering God's people into freedom. And so, as we continue once more, Daniel chapter 7 helps us understand the order of events that we find in Revelation chapter 5. In Daniel 7, we saw the throne of God, and then the Son of Man comes, approaching the throne. In Revelation, we see the throne of God, and then the Lamb that was slain, approaching the throne. These are pictures of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man, as he attested constantly throughout his ministry. And Jesus is the Lamb that was slain, as attested by his death and resurrection. And it is precisely because of his sacrifice 
that he is the one worthy to take the scroll. In other words, his death and resurrection are the means by which God's purposes, God's kingdom have been established in the world. The living creatures and the elders sing about this in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The rest of the chapter builds and builds chorus upon chorus with worship culminating to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And they fell down and worshiped. So this is the central image in the book of Revelation. It's a picture of power, beauty, and worship where God is seated on the throne and Jesus is the worthy lamb who was slain. So why does all of this matter? And what does it have to do with Advent? Well, this picture of unceasing worship and wonder of all God's people in creation living in harmony with each other, surrounded by the beautiful radiance of God, this is how things are meant to be. This is how things are meant to be. This is meant to create a sense of longing and desire within us. In the midst of sickness, we long for strength. In the midst of war, we long for peace. In the midst of pain, we long for healing. In the midst of tears, we long for joy. In our deepest hearts, we long for everything good and everything beautiful to ultimately be true. There is a deep ache within us. And this central image in the book of Revelation tells us that in fact, everything good and everything beautiful is true. In fact, it is the truest thing in all the universe. This is the only thing that will persist forever, the goodness and the beauty of God. But here's the problem. Chapter 4 begins with John journeying through a door into heaven where he's caught up in the Spirit. See, this is a picture of the way that things are in heaven. But we are here on earth where there is war and conflict and pain and corruption. This is why Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
The desire of our hearts is for that picture of perfect peace and wonder and beauty and goodness and worship to be true here on earth, just like it is in heaven. This prayer for heaven to come on earth, this prayer for earth to be filled with the knowledge of the worship of God just as it is in heaven. It is a prayer for God to come and make all things new. It's the prayer that everything in Revelation leads us to. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's the longing of the Advent season. That's the longing of these next few weeks. The anticipation with which we wait for Jesus to return. So throughout this season, there are a couple ways that I want to encourage you to engage in this longing. One of them is to enter into the story of the book of Revelation. Uh, Out there on the table, uh, you'll find little booklets, just like we had for Daniel. Uh, for the book of Revelation. And if you start reading chapter 1 today, and you read one chapter a day, you'll get through the book of Revelation on Christmas Eve. And so I want to encourage you to consider reading one chapter of Revelation a day. These journals have some prompts within them that encourage you to pause and reflect. There's space in here to journal and write. Um, Let this be your prayer guide throughout this next month as we journey through Revelation. In addition to that, um, each one of them has a little bookmark uh, that, that has the reading schedule on it. But on the back, there are a number of prayers uh, that you will also find in the art wall Uh, that are these ancient prayers longing for God to come, steeped in biblical imagery that go back probably to about the 5th century and have been prayed by the church during Advent since then. And so during this season, pray some of these prayers and make them your own as our hearts long for the coming of Jesus. May we pray Come, Lord Jesus, come.